The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today. Hello and welcome back to the Yesterday and Today podcast. We are pausing our regularly scheduled 1976 episodes to bring you a new interview episode with a very special guest, Mr. Doug Bogey. Doug is an accomplished musician, artist, producer, engineer, and is known in the Beatles world as a member of the select few to have a record issued on Ringo Starr's Ringo Records, which keen listeners will recall from our 1975 finale, the tune Away in a Manger, which was released on Ringo Records in the latter half of 1975. Doug is also known for his work in many, many bands, including his work as the third bassist in the band Queen. So we're very excited to talk to Doug today, and we hope you all enjoy the interview. We'll be back with our regularly scheduled 1976 episodes after this, but we'll take it away, Doug. Let's do it. I've got absolutely no idea why we're talking, by the way. <laughs> and what I mean by well, that is, I'm just a guy that's earned his living doing stuff. <laughs> Sometimes when people say, oh, you've got to come and talk about it, I say, listen, I'm just a guy who's stood in the same room as a lot of other famous people. It's not the same. <laughs> I mean, I had my crack, yeah, but got... it didn't he work, you know? You've been in and around so many bands. I was looking at your just your Discogs page yesterday, and I was like, oh, my God, he worked with... XYZ, I was like amazed there's been so many, you know? Um, um, yeah, a lot of the fun ones aren't on that because a lot of the time you get asked to come in and help with people. I mean, you know, the reason I live in this house here in Scotland, outside Edinburgh in a small village, is that in the years when punk was just starting, I knew a guy who had start. he had started a recording studio in the little tiny village school that had been sold off. So it's, a, yeah. it's this little old Gothic building. And he uh-huh. had to go out playing on tour, so... Um, he asked me if I could come and babysit Nazareth doing an album here. And mm, wow. I said, yeah, that sounds good to me. And, and I found this little house just across the road. So, and I've lived here since 1991. 
That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, wow. it's funny how little things happen. You know, it's little parallel things. You know, yeah, yeah. it's a very, very small world. I think we've well, started. Oh, I think sorry. that's what right. this okay. is. I think no. I think the intro is. <laughs> Let's just I think go we back. Blew right by the intro. No, I no, like you, it. Um, uh, so uh, you're a man of you're a man of many names. What would you prefer, Douglas? Doug's fine. Bogey or Gray or Doug? Just Doug. Doug. I mean, Doug. My official name on paperwork is Douglas Bogey Gray. Okay. It's like one of those you know, fancy names, but I, I just used to use Doug Bogey in my early days. So I thought it was fun. You know, you're just one of ten people that's been on Ringo Records. Yeah, and that's amazing. I mean, it's a, number one. It's amazing Ringo had a record company. You know, I have to tell you, out of the guys, from what I know of them, anyway, far and away the nicest man. Really, far and away. Oh yeah. All right. Okay. We'll, we'll get to it. And well, we'll, let's, let's welcome Douglas Bogey Gray, the official name on paper of Doug. <laughs> Bogey, who's joining us today. Doug, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for the invite. You helped us out with some technical difficulties. You've been, we just need you on every show, I think, from here on out. Well, I ain't going nowhere, so. <laughs> you're, you're really classing up the place. <laughs> That's why they call you the colonel, right? <laughs> well, that was, that was just a, a bit of a joke, but. Bogey's your middle name formally on paper. Yeah. Bogey is a very, very old Scottish name, and huh. my clan name is Gray. So Bogey is one of several family names that are in my name. And uh, I kind of quite liked it because it was a bit different. Yeah. In England, the name Bogey, by the way, is kind of a bit rude, a bit kind of crappy. Really? It's, it's not a polite <laughs> name. Because, um, see, in America, you guys have got every name under the sun. It's wonderful. You yeah. can't have a weird or funny name in America. Cause... Well, we have clan names over here, too, but it's, they're very <laughs> yeah, but, uh, That's a different thing. No, that was not uh, where I was going with the whole clan thing. Uh, so, anyway, and a, lot of, a whole bunch of my people, uh, Clan Grey, went across to Newfoundland in, um, in harsher times, shall we say, a, a yeah. century or more ago. And that's mostly all the guys that you meet called Bogey in the States. And, and there's quite a few pockets here, there, and everywhere. That's where they came from. They, they moved down from Newfoundland and throughout the States. Wild. Every now and again, I come, I come across one. You go, oh, hi. I have an elder brother, and he's in one of these guys that's into looking up your family history. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I have a brother-in-law like that. He keeps telling me, oh, there's these guys. And I think, but I don't know them. <laughs> Why are you telling me this? It's a bit like Facebook friends, you know. What, what was it that Sheldon used to say on that uh, comedy program? Um, oh, Big Bang. Yeah. Um, and one guy says to him, you've got a thousand friends on Facebook, but you never see them. And he said, that's the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> There's something to that, isn't there? You know? Definitely. Anyway. Well, so I, have a, I actually have a question for you. Okay. I don't know. Are you familiar at all with uh, the Paul McCartney song, Bogey Music? Do you know I'm not? There's a song called Bogey Music, and I've never known what it meant. I just thought he was being cheeky, and it was like a play on boogie or something. Yeah, like boogie. That. It might be that. UK uh, speak, a bogey, and I think it might be the same in America if you're a train enthusiast. You know the little groups of foot wheels at the beginning and the back of a, of a, On the tr a railway train? They're called bogey wheels. Oh, huh. Or bogeys, you know. 
Yeah. I hand in my Lionel uh, membership. Yeah. And I may as well get, get this over with. The sad thing is, in England, not in Scotland, but in England, bogey means snotters. Out of your nose. Okay. Uh, we have the we have bogeys. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. yeah, same thing. But I quite like the name was kind of close to boogie, and I thought, well, what the hell, I just go yeah. for it. And... Um, <laughs> And the thing with uh, the colonel bit was just I had yeah. to find a name. It was right. it was just basically to do that thing with Ringo, and uh, it was just finding something vaguely comical that related to me. And of course, I, well, you probably do know this, but you know, Colonel Bogey was a, a military marching tune from World War One. I saw oh, that. I thought you were in it when I looked originally on your bio. <laughs> I'm getting a bit old. And, um, and the guys used to go along whistling it. And then, of course, it became adopted um, in World War II with the exceptionally rude lyrics, which is quite good if you're not very into Nazis. And, and quite, uh, and Canadian military use it too. And uh, so it's just become one of those staple marching band things. So it's a tune I've known from my youth, basically. Mm, yeah. So I thought, well, Colonel Bogey, it's a laugh. Let's go for it. Because it was just a novelty record. It wasn't, mm. you know, I didn't go there to sell them a novelty record. It's just how it worked out. Well, let's, I mean, I'll, I'll just for the listeners at uh, home or in your cars or wherever you're listening to podcasts, we can see you, by the way. We are talking to you today for a variety of reasons. I mean, you've had a, a storied musical career over the past, you know, 50 odd years. But listeners to the podcast will remember we recently talked about the single you released on Ringo Records in the, our 1975. I think it was the, the, the last part of the 1975 special because it was right. Christmas, Christmas time release. And so, you know, we're going to walk through your career. We're going to talk a little bit about how you arrived at all the different technical credits that you've, you know, you've done engineering and you've been in several groups. And we'll talk about the Ringo release a bit. But we'll start here just growing up. We wanted to know a little bit about what your musical influences were. Was your family a musical family? Were you listening to rock and roll around the house? Like, can you give us a, a, a no, glimpse uh, into the My father was a past. very serious old-style Scotsman who uh, got married in, just after the war, met my mum in India, and stayed down yeah. south because that's where mm. the work was. If you came back to Scotland, you were basically coming back to the farm. You know what I mean? Right. And and he did quite well, but uh, so he was into big band music, show tunes, some classics. So mostly the house was full of him playing too loud. I'm glad to say, <laughs> kind of the American songbook. It was uh, yeah, it was great, a great way to start, you know. And I had an elder brother who was uh, into uh, trying to look and sound like Buddy Holly, so that was quite good. But there were six <laughs> years between us, so I wasn't really allowed. But yeah. um, over a small, short period of time, I uh, managed to blag my dad's tape recorder. So I just got into the whole thing of recording things, messing around with my brother's amp when he wasn't in the house, you know, breaking stuff. <laughs> that was right. good. I was quite lucky in as much as I went to a pretty decent kind of, what they call grammar schools here. So it's n not a private school, it's just a, yeah. but quite a decent public school. And uh, they had a kind of classic music department. And I was very lucky. I got into the music stream, which meant I didn't have to do biology, didn't have to do geography. <laughs> so a lot of time was spent just doing, uh, and that was also obviously classics. And we had right. kind of choirs and stuff like that. So we would go out and do BBC broadcasts in churches, just weird stuff like that. All sounds a bit yeah. kind of strange from a half a century later, but hey, it's just how it was. The real stuff that mattered. Yeah. I mean, I was 10 when the Beatles broke into the charts in the UK with their 
basically fun, lightweight love songs. Yeah. But they were just so uplifting because there was nothing else like it. There really wasn't. And it's hard to think back to how things were going. You just went, oh, wow. And you spent all day singing Beatles songs. You just were singing along, you know, because they were everywhere. Right. It was great. What was the first one you heard, Doug? Oh, God. Or that introduced you into the uh, Beatlemania? Like, for us, it was Ed Sullivan and I Want to Hold Your Hand. I'm curious on the UK side. I think side. that might actually be... I mean, obviously, I've seen that clip a, f- a fair few times. And uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. She Loves You. I mean, it was all very... Um, it was all boy meets girl stuff. It was great. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and well, Please Please Me was the Oh, was yeah, Please the Please Me, of first course, one gosh, in, you see. So long Britain, has gone yeah. by. Yeah. And here's Please Please Me. But the real magic moment, which tied a whole bunch of threads for me together, was my dad had bought this thing called a stereogram, which is like a long record player in a big box on legs. It had a <laughs> yeah. speaker at either end. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. It took well, half you know, your room. <laughs> what can I tell you? And um, so I said, what will I be there? I was 13 then, I guess. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, yeah, there you go. I oh, spent yeah. the next month of my life lying with my head under the stereogram. <laughs> wow. Because it wasn't, it wasn't just music. It was yeah. a whole soundscape. Yeah. I mean, it was just wonderful. I mean, George Martin should have had a, a knighthood for that. I mean, I know he got one eventually, but it took a long time. But between him and the audio side of it and those wonderful, wonderful songs, which were now no longer just lovey-dovey love songs. They had more meat. They had more stories. There's much more narrative in them. Yeah. I mean, it was just yeah. the most magic, magic affair. 13 is such a tender age to be hit with Sergeant Pepper after not hearing anything else like that. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, um, I love American crooners, but it really wasn't the same. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is just a kind of a perspective of where you are and when you are, but as it was, if because of the way it was produced, and I think this is mostly down to Martin, it really was the original concept album. So to me, it's, it's like classical music. It's a piece. So although there are yeah. highlights, I, it's hard for me to rip a piece out and go, that was it. I mean, I love Good Morning, Good Morning. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. and it's getting better. It's getting better. I mean, who in their right mind would start off a pop song with an octave high guitar going, ding, 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 <laughs> and then t- and turn into a piece of magic? It was wonderful. Yeah. For me, Sgt. Pepper's really is its a big, cohesive whole. Of course, back in those days, it was vinyl, so we had the big sleeve, the gatefold, yeah. all, oh, the things, sure. all the little things you could cut out. It was great. Did you ever see the Beatles in concert or anything? Or Sadly not, but oh. I mean, it all, 
But, you know, if I had, what would I have seen? I would have seen a room full of young screaming girls with no audio you could hear. So That's okay. I'm not at all <laughs> sad that I didn't really. Yeah. <laughs> I know it might sound a little weird, but, um, nah. Yeah. It, it was, maybe that's part of the whole being a studio guy kind of thing. I actually much prefer my music in a room with me in it. Right. Adjusting the sound. Even, even if it's a concert I really like, and it's an artist I really like, I feel like at a loose end. I should feel I should be working. Because some of the work <laughs> that I used to do was, was live sound mixing. So um, yeah. I just feel awkward just sat there, you know what I mean? Surrounded by, <laughs> well, surrounded by all these people jumping up and down and shouting. Why do the audience, you can tell me maybe, why do members of the audience think that them jumping up and down and shouting and screaming and waving their arms in the air with a cigarette lighter or now a telephone somehow adds to the event because i don't get it it's like a it's like a bacchanalia thing right it's just yeah. like you're participating in it and uh, uh, oh well there you are you see participating i don't participate mate oh no <laughs> <laughs> well now i don't i don't do that at every show but i've been compelled to move at a few concerts particularly in like a pit it's more difficult to yeah. do that seated and stuff but. i guess it's mostly to do with being old i mean i do recall <laughs> jumping about to music at live gigs when i was 16 17 but you know a lot, of, a lot of water has passed since then. <laughs> the Ramones doing some slam dancing. That's what I remember. <laughs> well, let's talk oh, about you. Dear. You talk about yourself in the studio. Let's talk about that. So, you know, you know if you're bass playing, but oftentimes what we hear is guitar is really the gateway drug to every other instrument. And yeah. So I was wondering, you know, what was your path musically? You start, did you start on guitar or did you target bass or how, you know, how'd that work? Well, like a lot of guys that play bass, it's, it's quite a simple journey. Can I guess? Uh, you can guess. Somebody had to do it. You got it, got it in one. Uh, the school I was at was a real strange one because it was, it was mostly quite, um, What's the word for it? Quite advantaged people. And of course, so they, yeah. some of them had kind of strange ideas. And sure. so a couple of guys would come in and they'd have albums by Big Bill Brunsey, mm. John Lee Hooker. I mean, all new to me. Wow. And we were just so, I suppose, around the same time as the Sgt. Peppers and the year or so after, we just got into blues and American blues. There you go. Also, I guess at that time, whilst we were doing that, which obviously was kind of old music, the UK had just really started picking up the blues and running with it. Because, I mean, there really was such an explosion of blues music at that time that turned into rock music, as we now have to call everything. Right. Yeah. Plant and, Page, when, oh, and, well, I guess, you know, Keith, and, Keith and Mick before that, yeah. So it was, you know, it was various versions of John Mayle, Yardbirds, Alexis Corner. Mm. I don't know if he's a famous name in America, but he was a big name in the UK in, in old-style blues. And uh, Peter Green, of course. And then... You might not realize it, but Jethro Tull, in their first instance with Mick Abrahams on guitar, were very bluesy. It was kind of huh. medieval folk thing, just started pushing him aside, which is basically why he left. Mm. Cream, of course. Ah! Disraeli Gears, right. help! <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going mad, you know? And, uh, and of course, great. still the number one for, I think, a lot of us, Jeff Beck, who still, he can still yeah. do it, you know? Yeah. So... Anyway, all that was just influences, and that was great. So, I mean, I, I love Glenn Cornick and uh, in Jethro Tull and Jack Bruce, of course, because although I was underage, we used to go into a local blues club in a, in a pub nearby, and all these bands were gigging every sort of Wednesday night. Names now that you'd be paying $200 to go and see, then it was right. you just slipped in mm -hmm. and collected some glasses for nothing. 
Um, <laughs> and I had a friend at school who was starting up a band. Like a lot of guitar players, was quite an enclosed, inward-looking, serious guy, <laughs> as so many guitar players seem to be in the UK. But we're not all as outgoing as uh, you know, the American guys that you see bleeping about. Well, not when they start. Anyway, he was a great guitar player and was really getting it, you know. Yeah. And so guess what? They needed a bass player. Hey, yeah. I can do that. Uh, okay. I can do that. <laughs> um, so I hung up my piano accordion, which is yeah. what I'd learned when I was a kid, and my clarinet, yeah. which is what I learned in school, and uh, never looked back, as they say. I got a wow. $30 Vox, really cheap and nasty bass guitar, and uh, hmm. had great fun. What can I tell you? So we had, basically we had a couple of blues bands is what it came down to. And we started gigging, so, you know, it was okay. Gigging around high schools or... Uh, no, or? high schools yeah. in the UK didn't really encourage that sort of thing. Oh. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. That was for the common <laughs> folk, you know. So, no, so yeah, basically you had to put your own gigs <laughs> on. So you got some in public houses, in pubs, clubs. Mm. There weren't really any yeah. clubs where we were in Surrey, but we used to hire village halls. Then we would maybe hire a slight, well, I say slightly, a more famous group to be the headliners, and we would book ourselves as the support. And that was just mm-hmm. a way of getting gigs together. Worked out okay. So you played blues yeah. throughout all your bands. I mean, yeah. it nice. was pretty much all it was. It was stuffed by Cream. It was stuffed by mm. Rory Gallagher. Oh, and, yeah. And um, we just loved it, Yeah. I mean, obviously, we were trying to do a few of our own things, but they were kind of very amateur. It was early days, you know. Sure. Yeah. We're now talking the late 60s. You, know, you mentioned Sgt. Pepper and, you know, gigging with the blues bands, but it's in the early 70s where you start to turn pro. Can you... We're, we're going to talk about Queen a bit in a moment, but can you draw us a, a bit of a line from the early days of gigging around in high school and then, mm. you know, up until Queen? <laughs> <laughs> well, like most aspects, like a lot of my life, it's all, it's all in quite short little spurty periods. So, yeah, um, 69, 70, we were still gigging in local halls and stuff. Whilst I still had a, a, a sort of bands of my own and everything, I quite enjoyed auditioning. Yeah. I must have really enjoyed rejection or something. I don't know. Something. (laughs) I was about to say, not many people I could say love auditioning (laughs) as a process. (laughs) Yeah, but for me, bearing in mind, I did have this rather bizarre outlook on music, I think, which is, I don't know quite where it fits in in the world. But we had the Melody Maker, a weekly music newspaper, which always had wanted ads in the back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In between the uh, ads for sort of things that would uh, get you high and loon pants and other (laughs) post-hippie junk, you know. Yeah. Or John and Paul arguing with each other in article form. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I would often just pick the phone up and... It's one of those difficult things. You can't really remember half of it because it's so long ago. But, yeah, I got to play for an hour with all sorts of people that you wouldn't normally expect to get to play with when you're basically an amateur musician, you know. It was quite good Hmm, fun. Yeah. So, including one in a church hall down in Cobham, in Surrey. Hey, oh. there you go. Um, yeah. Who was that? <laughs> so, yeah, one Saturday afternoon, I was down for a couple of hours in a, a very, very palatial hall attached to a large country house in Cobham, in Surrey. And that was uh, an audition to do a tour with, what do we call them? The Moody Blues. So I'm, you see, I'm too old. <laughs> you should me. Wait, is this this is post Denny though, right? This is all post Denny Lane. Yeah, Brian Hines. I can't remember any of the bloody names. It's funny. 
and, and, and a few other people too. But uh, no, it was great fun. That is amazing. Now you were what, 17, 18? Oh, I suppose, yeah, 17, I guess. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. I must have thought I was okay at the time. I don't know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, you had that, I mean, oh, when you're dear. when you're 17, 18, up until I feel like 23 is the cutoff. Yeah. You got that invincibility thing, right? So you can yeah. do anything. There's a lot of truth in that. Absolutely. You yeah. just see things in a, not a blinkered way, but in a more focused kind of way, you know? And sure. you don't let the outside stuff get to you. But right. um, one of those adverts turned out to um, just said kind of, Bass player needed, uh, phone this number, phone the number, spoke to the roadie, really nice guy called John. Uh, could I present myself at um, Imperial College on the Thursday afternoon, which is Imperial College is a university in London right behind the um, Albert Hall, so it's all very oldie-worldy. Mm-hmm. You know. yeah. And I got there, and um, I get into this lecture theatre, which somehow they managed to blag for rehearsals, <laughs> and there was Brian May, plonking away on his wee guitar. Wow. And uh, that funny drummer bloke, what's his name, Roger? Basically, it was, come on in, let's have a a blow around. So we were basically blowing old, um, not so much blues numbers, as more almost rockabilly style, because Brian was always quite into a lot of old-fashioned, even then, music styles. And then we kind of yeah. rocked it up a little bit, because, as you know, he's also a Led Zepp fan, and who wasn't right. at the time, you know? Right, right. <laughs> And so we played away for a little while, and that seemed to be going all right. Wow. And um, Freddie then arrives. Not, I didn't know it was Freddie, of course, until later, uh, with Mary on his, uh, on his arm. Very strange. He's a very odd man. <laughs> so he walks into this. Uh, cause be- Mary was his girlfriend? or Yeah, that's the kind of lady, yeah. the so-called oh, okay. love of his life who, who wasn't a gotcha. bloke. You know. At that time, yeah. they were very, very much a couple. You know? Right. And, and that's kind of nice, you know. Yeah, so being a lecture theatre, it kind of has steps coming down from the back to the front. So Mm. Freddie made sure he arrived at the top, the back. I mean, we're just a bunch of unknown hoodlums, okay? And here he's doing an entrance into a rehearsal room. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll never forget because he had this mottled scabby jacket on, which I think must have been made out of rabbit or something, but it could have been a dead cat for all I know. (laughs) But, um, um, you know, and then we just kind of, Started doing some tunes. I think the first thing we ran through was Stone Cold, Stone Cold Crazy because it has a real, oh, it's a real riff-based piece, you know. Yeah. Guys seemed to nod to each other, and uh, I was in. I was wow. a member of Queen for that short while afterwards. Wow. And uh, so you went from Moody Blues to Queen. This is incredible. Well, no, no, no. The Moody Blues was just like a Saturday afternoon out. That wasn't real. Yeah. That wasn't real. As you do, that, uh, as you do. Uh, yeah, as, as you do. Such is life. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, so gosh. What we, so yeah, the rest of the afternoon was spent working on tunes. They only had a few weeks until they had some gigs at a guy called Paul Conroy at Charisma Agency, part of Charisma yeah. Records, had booked in for them, uh, which was the two that I did. Yeah, it was just work, work, work. But I was having a great time. 
for me to get to the rehearsal place, I lived in a place called Weybridge in Surrey in those days. Not far okay. from Cobham. And, um, <laughs> wait, Weybridge. Wasn't, didn't George live in yeah, Weybridge? Well, John, yeah, well, everyone's lived in Weybridge. I mean, God. <laughs> everybody. I lived in Weybridge, for goodness sake. And, um, I drove through Weybridge. But the difference is I didn't get the limousine. Right, sure. I put my very battered old Telecaster base in a rucksack, went round the corner of the main road and jumped yeah. on a double-decker bus that took me the 38 miles into, into central oh my London. God. So, so wow. it was a, a slightly different arrangement. But hey, I was, I was up for it. You know, it was absolutely yeah. cool. <laughs> you played a few shows and we were wondering not only about what the state of the band was at the time, but, you know, what was the experience like, you know, playing <laughs> alongside those guys for the, for the shows that you did play with? Were they popular at the time? Or? Oh, God, no. It, no. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, we're, we're talking about down-home beginners. Right, I mean, right. Okay. They were going to become a big, huge, massive, and amazing professional band, but they sure right. as hell were nothing like it at that time. And I think they would probably all, if they were honest, say much the same. Because I don't, I don't know if you know, but particularly with Brian, he likes to think that nothing existed before mid-71 and John joined. He just pretends it doesn't exist. Yeah. Sure. Uh, which you can kind of understand. Well. Yeah. That's when the real thing started, and they were a real recording artist by then. Sure. But back in those days, it's a bit like I was saying about that guy, Mick Spinks, guitar player. Brian was obviously a seriously introverted guy. Mm, yeah. He must have spent every second of every day in his bedroom with his guitar, because he was really good, if that mm. makes any sense, you know? Mm. And uh, very quiet. I mean, polite, don't get me wrong, because uh, like myself, a home counties chap, knew how to speak and everything. Right. which is quite rare in the music industry at that time because most people weren't like that. <sighs> yeah, Brian was cool, quiet. I swear I called yeah, him reserved. But, he did, but yeah. by God, he could hack that guitar and make a noise out of it even, even then. <laughs> I mean, he knew how to do that thing, you know. And I loved yeah. it because it was a crappy old Vox AC30. And, of course, like anyone else, I thought, how on earth are you going to get a noise out of that? It's horrible. But, of course, <laughs> he had a Range Master treble booster, exactly the same as Gallagher used to use. And with his... Mm guitar that he made which was wound with single coil pickups so the initial sound was not a million miles away from a Stratocaster so that's how you could get that ballsy sound out of an AC30 because in those days anyway they were quite low gain amps and they didn't really have much gain for them you know they were great for the Beatles but they needed help to make a big noise well they were the currency in England right because they were the they were the the homegrown pretty much and over here over here it was all Fender and I mean I've I've always been a Fender person uh, since I became a musician. But uh, back in the, although I'm yeah. saying that, there was a much, much worse company called Selma who made awful amplifiers. My first bass amp was a 50 watt Selma PA head plugged into a big cabinet with an 18 inch speaker in it. So it just made this kind of noise. Just enough to annoy your parents. Yeah. So nobody could tell if I was playing well or not. You know, I could have been playing anything. <laughs> You mentioned Stone Cold Crazy before. Any other songs that were in the infancy stage? <sighs> yeah. Um, I'd be lying if I said I could really remember actually doing them. But um, most of the tunes were from either showed up on the first or the second albums. I mean, I think my favorite that I remember from the time mm. probably is um, Son and Daughter because I love those heavy riffs. <laughs>
Uh, and of course, in those days, Freddie was just singing. And dare mm-hmm. I say it, Freddie was kind of learning to sing. And, right, yeah. um, finding his voice, probably. Well, you know, I mean, because as you know, he never had a big, heavy rock and roll voice. He had a tuneful voice. You know? He's a bit more choir boy. <laughs> Did they do any Beatles? <laughs> no. Not when no. I was there, anyway. Oh, okay. I wouldn't have mind. I would have been good. I would have loved that. <laughs> but, um, no, it's, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. And hmm. um, Roger, of course, it's worth saying, he was actually the only pop star in the room because he was already a pop star because in his head, he was a pop star. <laughs> and he just had that thing that people get when you're a pop star. He didn't need yeah. to be one. He just was one, you know. Right. It's a bit like, um, you know, do you want to be a great actor or a movie star? Because it's quite a different skill. Yeah. Sure. And yeah. he, was, he was definitely the movie star. And that voice, oh, it could rip you in two, like a sweet sheet of sandpaper. It was great. It was high, yeah. but it was kind of rippy and bluesy and full of harmonics. So when they, they sang together, and, and Brian's voice was essentially very soft and quite high, a bit like that. Mm. But, so, but mm. the three together... Oh, what a great noise. Fantastic noise. Were there any band members that you felt especially close to up there on the stage? Well, or? I guess being being part of the rhythm section, I would have said Roger, but in all fairness, Roger's a bit like a bit like Eric Clapton. Roger's awareness <laughs> of the universe is really based on himself and the immediate space <laughs> around him. And no matter I don't think it's unfair to say, you know. Um, yeah. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's part of what made them great. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and his performances were wonderful. You're not there to be a vicar or a priest, are you? You're there to be a rock star, so get on with right, it. Yeah? Right. So, yeah, that was great. Um, the shows, if you want to quickly bash that. So the first one was a huge, dark, forbidding hall in a place called Hornsey in North London. Not the world's most lovely place, but, you know, if you just imagine kind of downtown crap town, you know, Mm. And um, like a lot of things in those days, remember the lighting and everything was kind of, even the lighting for the main bands wasn't up to much. A lot of it was just kind of oil-filled yeah. projectors, a couple of baby stage lights. wasn't great. But as a support band, basically you didn't get them. You mm. kind of played mostly right. in the dark. But it, it, was, it was okay <laughs> in Hornsey because the hall was so big and basically so empty because what few people were there were in the bar because they were coming to see a band called Pretty Things, who were, you know, I suppose you call them progressive-y, bluesy band. You know, they, yeah. they had hit albums and stuff. And they weren't yeah. really there to see a bunch of unknown people with a funny name. Because let's face it, Queen mm. is kind of a funny name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it's like in the States, but if you call someone a Queen here, well, it, didn't, it wasn't a good thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, back in the 70s in high school, it was the same. You know. Exactly. I mean, yeah, everything changes. Now, um, yeah, now it's quite a hype compliment. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that gig went by. We did our bit in the dark uh-huh. and went off home in the back of the truck, as you do, because John, mm. the roadie, was a great guy. He could find you a truck anywhere. He's an amazing bloke. <laughs> Bearing in mind, nobody had any money. I mean, the guys were living in basements in a way that, well... You wouldn't want to keep your pet. I mean, it was, they had nothing. Mm-hmm. They were just working at trying to make this happen. Sure. You know? And so we would go in the back of the van with the equipment. And the only light was the light that would come in through the, the ceiling, you know, of the, from the streetlights. Yeah. But somehow it seemed really, really exciting to me. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, Rock and roll, baby. Uh, Rock and roll. Rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, right. And the second day, 
comes to the whole yes thing, uh, that was um, basically just down the road from where I went to school and very close to my, so it was my hometown. And uh, that's a place called Kingston Polytechnic. And uh, yes, were the headliners. Because yes, were in the middle of a huge European tour on the back of the Yes album. Yeah. Oh, right. Great album. And I have to say, but, you know, in terms of, I didn't really do it in influences, but yes, in the progressive side of music, yes, were absolutely it. Chris Squire, mm-hmm. absolutely magnificent bass player for me, you know. But I'll come on to that in a second. And Rick Wakeman was there. <laughs> so, uh, gig. It was quite interesting. It's quite a small theatrical stage and a theatrical style environment in a, in a what they call it, a, I don't know, just a college in a, in a town. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you had 600 people in it, you were busy. But they had some fun. What was amazing and totally innovative to me is that Yes had brought back Iron Butterfly's PA system from the States. Now, <laughs> wow. yeah. that was the first PA system that consisted of big W bins, and they had a wee yeah. Altec Lansing mixer with knobs on and meters and all sorts of flashing lights. It was great. And so that was quite exciting. So the sound for the UK was top-notch, really good. Now, obviously, being the support band, we didn't get much level out of it, but, it was, but you could tell it was good even then. But before, <laughs> yes, weren't terribly accommodating as people. Um, so we were told <laughs> we would have to use their back line. Uh-huh. And of course, I'm going, yes. Fender Dual Showman <laughs> with bloody twin Gauss 50. I'm, I'm up for it. I'm, that's good for me. I'm going to plug in. <laughs> hey, guys, I'm plugging into Chris Squire's amp. <laughs> I mean, absolutely couldn't be beaten. Others weren't quite so happy at that. <laughs> and sadly, I, I don't know quite what, you don't know exactly what happened, but there wasn't really proper dressing rooms as such. as a backstage area with a couple of partitions, mm. you know. And... Uh, Chris wandered in and gave Brian a bit of a hard time about sitting at the piano doodling away. So yeah. there was a bit of a tension in the air. You know what I mean? I didn't get any crap, but I think the guys did. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. all that stunning. Time to go. It was a good crowd because the college crowds were, were always better than the ordinary kind of paid gigs because you knew there'd be a, it would be full, and it was full. And I probably knew... 40 or 50 people in the audience so it was it was very warm and thrilling for me yeah because so close to your hometown (laughs) you may that's there's some bragging rights right there (laughs) do you know i wish there was a bloody picture of it though because there's nothing there's nothing to be had really yeah not a thing well people didn't really have cameras in those days it's just that was quite a rarity Mm. you know maybe an instamatic for when you go on a holiday or something we're officially putting out the call. Any yeah. listeners who know oh, cool. of that gig have <laughs> access to that. Please let us know. That would be something. I'd be uh, forever in your debt. So was Chris, he didn't like you plugging into his amp? Is that no, no, happened? no. He, he, he just didn't <laughs> like people being in his space, even though at that time it wasn't really his space. No, no. Oh, no I mean, gotcha. it was, yes, his road crew insisted we use the back, their back line to make their lives easier, which kind of made hmm. sense, you know. Yeah. Well, for a bass player, it doesn't make a lot of difference. You can plug into pretty much anything, yeah. Sure. But I guess if you're a guitar player, you're going to feel a bit different, yeah. Mm. So I th- the whole thing started off maybe a little more edgy, and there was an issue. I had been told that you had to wear black and white. That was it. Black and white. Because <laughs> Freddie had decided that black and white was where it was at. It didn't matter if it was a black shirt and white pants or... <laughs> well, exactly. Now, it just so happened that... Um, because I have quite poor taste when it comes to clothes, I did have a pair of white 
Levi jeans, which because it's as, this is only slightly post hippie, I think it still had an insert of purple crushed velvet in the bottom end to make them flares. <laughs> <laughs> but I dug them out, and I had a kind of a, a nearly white, sort of shiny, silky kind of tie up shirt thing, but it had a very yeah. very pale mauve kind of snakeskin print through it, but you could hardly see it. But this deeply offended Freddie. He saw it. (laughs) What can I tell you? These guys have been to art college, you know what I mean? So, um, by the way, I mean, this is hand-on-heart stuff. I'm not even making this up to sound interesting. That's kind of ahead of his time, though, having a color scheme for the band. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that was very much part of his whole thing, wasn't it? uh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just early days. It just didn't exist yet, but it was going to later, what? you know? But, you know, image is important. Like, that's just branding. Yeah. Bearing in mind, if you think about it, because Yes were another band that were quite into their progressive onstage image with a co- costumes-type mm. clothing, too. So, you know, so we were in good company. Right. Anyway, so we start playing. I think it went fantastically well. Now, as you yeah. may have noticed, I've, I do sometimes have a quite outgoing nature. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I play and I'm having a good time, I like to leap about and have a good time. Yeah, that's that's what I right. do. Except when you're in the audience. Except when oh no, I hate being in the audience. You're absolutely right. I hate that. A, yeah. a, an audience is like a straitjacket. So, so I, I did my bit. We did our bit. The audience were pretty cool. I mean, you know, got a good reception. No, weren't booed off or anything. It was good. Had a nice time. That's a very low bar, by the way. You weren't booed off the stage. It's an incredibly low bar. I, I, well, I don't know how many gigs you've played. So. <laughs> uh, but I have to tell you that it, it went from me feeling really like a happy guy. Um, yeah. Oh, by the way, and I'm going to slip this one in. Now, I've always been totally straight. I mean, I do drink a bit, but I never touch drugs. Hope I never do, except for purely medicinal purposes, as they say, when prescribed. Yeah. The weak UK uh, Tylenol and stuff. Some, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, our stuff compared with your stuff. <laughs> wow. There's no difference. It's just nothing in it. You have to have half a packet to get the equivalent of a Tylenol. Um, we need every bit of our medicine to give us a heart attack. <laughs> well, I'm doing my best here. What can I tell you? So all the feelings that you get were real feelings. And I felt great. Yeah. On top of the world. So we pack away. We jump back in the van. We're sitting in the back in the semi-dark. And um, Freddie just lets rip. That was shit. That was terrible. That was an awful <laughs> gig. It was appalling. I can't believe you wore that stupid shirt. Um, what were you? Uh, Brian, God. you're an idiot. And I'm going, what? what's going on? I, think, I mean, obviously, Freddie was quite an emotional kind of guy. I'm thinking, well, yeah. maybe this is just what he does at the end of every gig. He just goes a bit on <laughs> rag, as we would call it. You know? Like Elvis. Yes, like Elvis. And um, so it just, that rant went on for a wee while. And basically it ended up with the, that's it. It's all over. I'm not doing this anymore. It's finished. Wow. Hmm. Now, I'm 17. I've done a few bands by then. And I know that sort of thing happens all the time. I've done it myself yeah. once or twice. And I, so I just took it. Okay. That's a shame. Right. I, thought, I thought it went really well. That's a pity, but okay. And I was a new boy, so it wasn't like I could really speak out. Right. You know? But the weird thing is, that means I was never actually fired. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite a concept, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, lawyer up, man. <laughs> lawyer up. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I feel a suit coming on. Um, <laughs> but there you go. What can I tell you? So basically, I went home within a couple of weeks with some other friends. I had another little yeah. local band going, so I was quite. I mean, nothing stopped. But at that point, that was the point that I changed to playing guitar. Mm. I suppose I wanted the I wanted the uh, adulation or something. I don't know. But no, I just like playing <laughs> guitar. Why not? And in those days, that kind of music, you could kind of get away. You know, you didn't have to be fantastic to be okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so again, we started gigging, and over the next sort of nine months or so, I finally, after many many letter writings phone calls i finally got myself a job in a recording studio wow i can't mm. tell you so i'm getting on my little motorcycle every day now and going from a place in surrey all the way around london to wembley to the delane lee music center the great big huge new complex of recording that they had there and i thought yeah. that life could not get any better really i certainly wasn't missing a, a group that bearing in mind had just disappeared off of the radar completely Right. Completely gone. Didn't hear about them for another, well, three years, basically. Wow. But um, so loved it. I mean, I can tell you some things about what we did there, but there was one oddity, which was I was in the, it was a big place. So we had a big tape library room and I was actually rustling through things because someone had told me that there were the original eight tracks from uh, Hendrix at the Isle of Wight. And I thought, wow, I'm going to put those on the machine and I'm going to bloody have a wee play and a listen, which I did. And that was yeah. great. Good fun. I also found a whole bunch of tapes which were Queen demos. Oh, wow. Which at that time, <laughs> no one had heard of Queen. No one, I mean, all those demos are out in the world now. But then I'm going, my God, how bizarre. So they did carry on. That was the first I knew of it. Right. Because when the Music Centre started, it was not technically a success. It was a beautiful big building, four studios, three uh, Neumann cutting rooms. I mean, that, that's quite impressive for then. But the desks were kind of... Mm, so one of the things they did was they got a few bands in, including Queen, and gave them some free time to do the demos, mm. basically so they could, they could practice on them. And right, the guys got yeah. some demos, and that obviously helped them when the time came, when they went, I think it was Trident, wasn't the management at Trident took them on to, uh, and then get, they started off in their astonishing and, ama and still to this day amazing music career. Yeah. Have you stayed in touch with any of them? You know, uh, Brian or Roger? <laughs> no. Or did they ever stay in touch? No. No. I think that's I'm, cross. What's that lovely thing? I think I'm dead to them. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <Man. laughs> but hey, it's, there's some, oh, there's so many funny things I could tell you about the whole Queen thing, but this ends up being a whole conversation about Queen, but I don't know. Right. I don't know if that's good, bad, or indifferent from your guys. But a great couple of years at Delane Lee working on everything from famous actors doing a Reader's Digest talking book through yeah. to we did lots and lots. They had a big studio which could take a symphony orchestra, so we were doing movie soundtracks, mm, um, yeah. you name I mean, big-time stuff, Hollywood stuff. After a couple of years, I mean, talk about luck. I mean, my first proper job at that studio was the junior engineer on ELO on the third day. Wow. And you go, oh, this is good. This is good. I want more of this.
great time. Learned so much. Wonderful recording engineer called Dick Plant there, who was mm-hmm. kind of my mentor. And I just learned, I learned as much about how to behave as an engineer in a studio as about the techniques and technologies. You know what I mean? It was a yeah. whole package. He's a great guy. Still around and uh, also plays a bit himself. Now at EMI, we know they made all the engineers wear lab coats. Did you ever have to wear a lab coat? Doug. <laughs> How rude am I allowed to be on your podcast? <laughs> Very rude. We'll censor it. Well, I, I'm British. I, I'm just swear. Well, I'm not just British, but I live in Scotland. We swear all the time. You know, Billy Connolly. Yeah? Um, I think anyone trying to put a lab coat on an engineer in, the, um, in a proper recording studio, because EMI were not really a proper recording. They were, a diff- they were an institution, you know what I mean? Uh, you just get told to fuck off. <laughs> I mean, good heavens. I, I did actually... Uh, so I was in a German studio once, and the, the guy did, in fact, have a brown coat on. I couldn't believe it. I just pissed oh, myself wow. laughing. <laughs> but there you go. It's all, all very different in different places, isn't it? Now, it was kind of rock... It was quite a rock and roll place, but we also did a lot of broadcast work and film work. So, I mm. mean... And it was just really weird. I mean, you just never knew what you are going to be doing from one month to the other. Did a couple of Renaissance albums there, which is where I first met those guys... Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And that was love. I mean, if you can imagine when you're, you're, you're quite young, you're sitting on the big tape recorder because you're doing all the switching into record and everything. And you're basically nodding off to sleep. And it's yeah. three in the morning. And you jerk awake to hear Annie Haslam's voice at an orchestra belting out, out of four 15 inch Tannoy speakers. <laughs> Whew, gives you a thrill to think about it even <laughs> now. You know? They were some good albums. So now we're talking sort of early early to mid-70s, right? Now, where does CBS okay. come into the picture? Well, basically, after a couple of years at Delane Lee, uh, which I enjoyed thoroughly, there were some, as always, you got on with a lot of people, and there were a few people you didn't. I wasn't very good with the management, put it that way, but I loved yeah. the, the working staff. I was um, invited to join CBS Studios in the centre of London because they were just basically looking for another staff engineer. In the UK... Yeah. Almost all engineers are staff. Freelance is very, very, very unusual. I think it's actually, in right. many ways, it's better because you, you, you get such a more bigger breadth of work that you get to do. But I do remember yeah. once I got to Los Angeles uh, working on my album, they thought that was really weird and that basically they just, you hired the studio and you hired an engineer to come together. But there you go. Maybe that was just the place yeah. I was at. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, CBS, great. Just different music, different. I mean, oh, just so many... I can't even really remember who's what, but weird stuff ranging from... I plucked out three here. I, I saw Soft Machine, oh, yeah. Dwayne Eddy, oh, yeah. and Mungo Jerry. I was like... <laughs> the Dwayne wow. Eddy album was great. I mean, it was, it was a yeah. comeback album, obviously. You know. uh-huh. mm. What a nice man. Yeah. And he had this horrible old dretched guitar with piano strings on it. I don't know how he played it. <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't get a note out of it. Amazing, amazing thing. So in the mid-70s, we're going to touch on the Ringo stuff 
Well, that's kind of that's kind of coming up next in terms of time. Let's do it. Let's jump yeah, right really. to Ringo. Ring, Richie, Richie, old Richie. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, oh, actually, no. I forgot to tell you something. Obviously, we're talking about Beatles as a huge influence on my entire life, and so you know, any little kind of rubbings up against them is kind of kind of nice. When I was at Delane Lee, mm. uh, basically working at that time, because I was very junior, as the guy who got the tea, Paul McCartney was in for a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. And I'm trying, this will be mm. about the time of Red Rose Speedway, just towards... Oh, 73. Um, yeah, maybe slightly earlier than, I think it was 72. But here's the funny thing. We were sweetening some live takes of some concerts as in basically doing replacement because some of the playing was a bit loose because, you know, yeah. some of that wing stuff was kind of loose, you know. <laughs> but the strangest thing is, that when I knew I was going to talk to you about it, I went to see if I could um, find anything in the archives about what it was. I can't find a mention of those sessions anywhere. It wasn't the Bruce McMouse stuff, was I, it? You know, I just don't know. Because there's a whole bunch of stuff at that time. And so, you know, they were in AMI, they were in air for a while, they were here. In Olympic, I think. But, uh... mm. So you were sweetening live wings in 72, 73? See, I don't want to be 100% on that. I don't know what the yeah. project was. Because I'd bear in mind, yeah. I wasn't really the engineer. I was just the guy that gave Paul his sure. cup of tea. And, and <laughs> Linda, too. And of course, as you can imagine, you're not Americans alike. It all had to be just like that with weird stuff in it I'd never heard of. You know? <laughs> But, uh, you know. Now, now, according to McCartney, <laughs> a cup of tea is just a cup of tea. He, he talked about that a lot yes. in 2005. Didn't he, though? <laughs> I beg to slightly differ. But, um, <laughs> hey, yeah, not not for me to say, really. So, anyway, just a critical shot. But it was just great to see the That's wild. To see the guy, because obviously he was he was a complete hero. You know, so. Except for the mullet, that must have been a letdown. Well, I ain't saying nothing. I don't think I was looking any too good in those days either. No mullet, but um, yeah. so wow, that's um, wild. That's just, really we cool. Whiz back forwards through. So I'm a staffer at CBS, doing some great stuff. Um, I thought also very interesting clients, huge range of things. I'll tell you what, it was a great few days, and that was Hall and Oates. Now. Wow. You see, I didn't oh, really know man. much about them because um, to me they just had that kind of, they were just an American kind of vaguely white soul kind of thing. But I knew their, their hits, mm -hmm. you know, obviously. Uh, but they had been touring in, in Europe and um, came in to do some dubs and some mixing. And what a pair of absolutely grade one nice guys they were. That's awesome. You know when you mm. work with some people and immediately you're embraced and you're in the team. Sure, yeah. And those two guys, just they just knew how to do that. Which is not what I thought from what I'd seen on TV shows. Now I thought they were going to be, I thought they were going to be gits, but they weren't. I was completely <laughs> wrong. They were really sweet guys, so that was nice. You didn't get the yes treatment from them. <laughs> no, no, no. no that's fantastic. So during my downtime, 
obviously, like a lot of people, I would um, do demos and stuff with some of my friends. We weren't really supposed to, but I thought, what the hell? I'm here. Nobody else is. I mean, I probably spent 18 to 20 hours a day most days in that studio. You know? And yeah. the way CBS was built, Studio 3 was up on the top floor uh, where the cutting rooms were. And that was three stories up. So you were completely divorced from the goings-on in the office and the big studio. So really, you could just get on with what you wanted to do, you know. So over a period of time, I had uh, made a demo album, which was a kind of a concept album, a sort of science fiction story. House Up in the yeah. Stars, it was called, about a journey. And various friends of mine mm. from various bands helped out. And it was, I thought it was kind of okay. And because I had a big ego in those days, I guess, like we were saying earlier, when you're young, you're a little brash sometimes. I phoned around and the first appointment I got to go and do a pitch was with Ringo Records. Huh. Now... I didn't really know much about Ringo Records, except obviously it was Ringo Starr's company. And it had a very posh address. And so I got in a taxi and went round to Barclay Square in the middle of Mayfair, darling, and oh, wow. um, looked around <laughs> for it, looking for an office block, really. Of course, there wasn't one. Cause it's all dead posh old buildings there. And then I noticed the number on the door, and it was a little side door, and it took you up above... Jack Barclay's Rolls-Royce showroom. <laughs> and you went up a wee stair. Oh, jeez. And, and Ringo Records was just up, up on top. And, and see, it was like going into someone's really, really, really upmarket flat or apartment. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, I just, I'll, obviously I'll just be seeing some guy, you know, some A&R guy. <laughs> so wait a minute. Ringo's record company was above a um, Rolls-Royce yeah. dealership? Excuse me. I think I think I have to say the Bentley and Rolls Royce dealership. <laughs> Jack Barclay is, is a name to be reckoned with. I think Ringo was stealing some of the uh, grills because he was making them into furniture at that you time. <laughs> so he oh, wanted to be close to the source. That's right. Anything that's is right. possible with that guy. He was great. Well, he was. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so you walk in, and so there's a table. There's a nice coffee set. There's a big Revox open reel tape recorder and a big pair of speakers. <laughs> there's some chairs. And there's Ringo Starr and Harry Nielsen. What? <laughs> and I'm going, oh, hi. What? <laughs> uh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Would you like to call me then sit down? It, it was, you know, and it was just so friendly. That's amazing. Yeah, well, absolutely. Wow. I didn't even see a receptionist. <laughs> Just <laughs> that was Harry Nielsen. He was the receptionist. Well, maybe. I mean, well, his, you know, his career was up and down a little bit in those days. So, sorry, Harry. I did my pitch. I told them the little story, and I played them some excerpts of the album. On a, I, I'd had a, had a ten and a half inch nab reel with it on. And they were nice. Mm. They were pleasant. And they said, no, thank you. Wow. <laughs> and, what do you well, think, Harry? If you think about it, it was really completely stupid because there's no way on this planet that a nascent tiny record company could possibly put out any kind of concept album. It just wouldn't work, would it? You know. But I, ha I hadn't worked that out at that time. I was still young and dumb. And, but it was very friendly. It was a pleasant 45 minutes. And I get up to go. And Harry says, I'm sure just out of niceness, do you have anything else? And I said, well, actually, I do. And I sort of dug around in my bag, this little tiny plastic reel. And I had this novelty song that I'd been working on with a couple of other friends. It was sort of midsummer at that time, but we were heading towards Christmas. 
a year and a half ago, when I was still at Delane Lee, I'd been part of the crew working on Roy Wood's Wizards, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. And uh, now, Roy Wood was the prime mover in a band called Move, which was a big, big, successful pop band from Birmingham in the UK in the late 60s into the 70s. Yeah. And Roy Wood basically started Electric Light Orchestra. It was him. But with, and Jeff Lynne came in, because obviously I had, and had some other people from the move in it in the early days too. They shared management. We had, a, in those days, we used to have managers who were a little bit like, um, or gangsters, I suppose you'd call them. Um, <laughs> and this guy was, uh, I mean, you know the kind of guys that come in, it's the middle of winter, he's got his sports jacket like this, and a, his shirt open like this, and a gold medallion. <laughs> but he's only actually yeah. about four foot five high. Really strange guy. It's, um... Oh, it was the father of the wife of Ozzy Osbourne, Sharon Osbourne, yeah. Uh, it was her dad and her brother. But they shared management between a whole bunch of these Birmingham-based groups. And that's why they always ended up coming down to Delane Lee to record. So the idea of maybe doing a, a little novelty number for Christmas was kind of in my mind. I thought, well, why not? Um, yeah. So I did it. <laughs> Never really expecting to do anything with it. So I popped it on the uh, Revox in Ringo's office and pressed play <laughs> and so wild and Harry Nielsen's <laughs> bobbing up and down to it and I'm going hey I'm actually making it here this is this is pretty cool and um, that's awesome and by the time I left I it was uh, yeah sure we'll put that out have to make a terrible terrible admission here the oh, b-side of it was an old tune called the hokey cokey which has got a different name in america hasn't it, Is it the, the hokey yeah, pokey, okay, pokey. Cool. um yeah and i did it i did it to a uh do you know what i mean if i say an asymmetric drum loop you get a drum loop on a quarter inch tape that you mix off of a multi-track but uh-huh. you cut an extra beat into it so it's not a perfect bar oh. And so yeah. every so you get an extra beat every two or three bars, depending on what you want to do. It's just to make it a little bit off kilter. You put that loop, which is only about, I suppose, three or four feet long, on a stereo tape machine, put a tape spool hanging off the front with a pencil in it to give it some weight, and you just play that into the multitrack, and that's your drum beat. So then the idea was I was trying to recreate a kind of slightly reggae feel. Yeah. <laughs> God knows if I succeeded or not. Um, Because again, uh, one of the things I used to do at Lane Lee is I used to work a lot with a company called Trojan, which is a UK reggae label. It was great because you'd be Mm. doing a mix and um, obviously most of the guys were were black guys because it was reggae. And um, someone would lean over with their mouth right by your ear and they'd say, more bass. So, (laughs) So whatever you did, you had to put in more bass. 
I think I have a new ringtone. Um, I just just going to be you saying more bass like that. <laughs> we sorry, but where were we? Okay. But the embarrassing thing about making that record was um, I did it in a, a fake Jamaican Yardy accent. Oh, God. Which, if I was to do that now, I'd probably be strung up and murdered. Yes, yeah, not. But not then, a, not a great like so many things, <laughs> it wasn't a deal because it, it just wasn't a deal. You know, it was just a, yeah. it, was, it was a joke. Yeah, but, uh, McCarty used to do that stuff all the time. Yeah, well, I, just, I think you can get away with more things than I can. So, anyway, yeah. upshot was I left the place. I had a check for four hundred pounds in my hand. It was a, as a, from Ringo. It was a little advance, first advance I ever got from anybody. Signed Ringo. Do you know? I wish I kept the check now. Oh my God! Yeah, you must have. Oh, <laughs> but, hey, but Not I used a Xerox <laughs> machine. Huh? I, I was living. Uh, my dad had died when I was quite young, and at that time I was living in a small apartment with my mother and um so i used it to go out and buy a secondhand color tv wow <laughs> there you go mm. did it ever occur to you that the check itself with the ringo signature was worth more than the money in no. the check because do you remember, it's like it's like so many things but when you're working in an industry you never think about things like that because it's just part of what's yeah. it's just part of the daily yeah. business you know i mean yeah. now right absolutely you know but say la vie and all that that's so crazy i mean i I'm sorry. That is remarkable that you went up there in those steps, and there's Harry Nilsson and Ringo Starr. Were you starstruck at all, or was it just like, oh, okay? I, I wouldn't say that I was so much starstruck, because it's quite hard to be, be starstruck by a drummer. But I loved him, and I loved the tea towels. I, it, was, it was great. That is like, I just loved him. I love that because that's the most like musician-y thing you could have possibly said. Well, I've got some much worse ones. Uh, but no. but the real reason was there was no issue. It was a business meeting on a friendly basis, very welcoming. There was just none of that stuff going on, you know. Maybe if it had been in a great big fancy office and I'd been shown in by, you know, bikini-clad dusky maidens or something, I don't know. But uh, that doesn't happen very often. Even in America. I'm surprised, actually, Ringo didn't have bikini-clad dusky <laughs> yeah, well, maidens. Yeah, sounds all right to me. There to... That's in Har- Harry's office, yeah, that was Harry's probably. Office, yeah. <laughs> well, they do, wow. they do say one is the loneliest number, don't they? <laughs> so, um, I, oh, a very small aside. By this time, Queen were beginning to be something. And so that, I think it was the Christmas Eve, Queen were doing a live televised concert on the BBC with stereo sound broadcast at the same time on the radio. We called them yeah. simulcasts mm. here. I don't know what you guys had. So yeah. one of the same first thing. things I yeah. saw on that bloody television was those bastards giving it weldy. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do, eh? What can you do? But on the other hand, I had the 400 quid. Right. And as far as I can tell, even in 1975... <laughs> With Ringo's name yeah, on it. <laughs> even in 1975, the guys in Queen were pretty much living really on the, on, on the baseline, you know, because it took a long time yeah. for them to get the just rewards, a long time. Mm. I mean, yeah, who hasn't got a story about management and money and 
Well, did you ever hear mm. anything from Ringo after the uh, uh, the release of the single, or was there ever any talk of doing anything else, or had you just kind of moved on by then? <sighs> kind of moved on, but uh, after after I left yeah. the office, I, I did, did go and spend a couple of days at Tittenhurst Park with him, just what? going over stuff. Um, oh, so why are you burying the lead? Oh my god! <laughs> well, okay, so what did impress me? Was, now, obviously, I know this is John Lennon's house. I mean, I don't. Yeah. Tittenhurst Park is yeah. a Georgian mansion. <laughs> in a 45-acre yeah. park with a huge lake. I mean, it is something else. It's, uh, yeah. wow. But you arrive, and of course, I'm in a motorcycle, because that's what I had in those days. So you get off it, and you're, the, you're in a sort of semi-formal garden, and there's this little windy, windy path, which I think was called the Wibbly Wobbly Way, mm. which, of course, is a John Lennon dirty joke, basically. And um, That's amazing. And that's yeah. Ringo's music company, Wobble yeah, Music. Well, Wobble Music, yes, I've forgotten that. That's true. So maybe I got that wrong. Maybe that was what it was all about. In my head, that's what it was. And then there's a, a sheet of glass, engraved glass above the front door. You are here. I mean, wow. very 60s, but it's great. That's awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. Um, so, yeah, I got shown in. Um, we had a wee cup of tea in the kitchen whilst the... Because Maureen, his ex-wife, was there with the kids running about and doing stuff. And Did they take you to the studio? Yeah. Uh, once we got going, we went into the studio. Well, there was a, some talk of maybe sweetening up the, the track. Yeah. Because I had a two-inch 16-track master right. from the studios mm -hmm. in um, CBS. And John's studio at that time, it was still like a one-inch eight-track. Yeah. So we didn't really think, well, you know, do we really care? No, we don't really care. The thing which knocked me out more than anything else was, apart from being in that room where that stuff had happened. Can I guess? Was, they had these amazing American kind of like barbershop oh. dentist chair things. <laughs> okay. And they were big chrome things with red leather and you, and you could pump a handle, it would go up and down. I thought it was great. We always so we always heard Ringo wanted to be a, a hairdresser, perhaps a, two hairdressers. a hairdresser. Yeah. Right? Well, that's that's part of the whole Ruttles thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, were there animal heads in there too at that time? Because I, I I do not remember that in truth. I can't. When I mean, you I watch can't. in the movie Born to Boogie, you see mm. that studio because Ringo was recording with Mark Bolin and um, Elton John in there, and there's these big zebra heads and stuff. I was wondering if any taxidermy stuck out. In I your don't mind. know, but that that might have been set dressing. You never really know in these kind of places. I don't know. Ringo, you big phony. You big yeah. wobbly yeah. phony. He's, a, he's allowed. He was, he's such a nice person. You can't, you can't say anything against that man, you know? Yeah. And when you think of all the crap he went through and he came out through it as a... I mean, he looks younger mm. and healthier than I do now, bastard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how does he do That's that? True. It know? does look good. All his peace and love and all that, you know? It's great. So, yeah, so we went and spent some time messing about in the studio to discover that we couldn't really do anything and we didn't care. So then we went through to, and, and this is the magic moment. A guy opens a door in front of you. You walk through that door. You're in the white imagine room. No Looking way. out of the windows. Nice. At, you know, it, it gives me a little shiver thinking about that now. Now, it had, the hmm. decor was changed because there was more furniture in it and that, and the white piano was no longer in that room. Yeah. Hmm. But I just stood there. I just stood there for about five minutes. And he said, amazing. <laughs> Yeah, Doug. It does get you a bit like that sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Did you try and open the blinds like Yoko? <laughs> no, I'm I'm not nearly as uh, I'm not nearly as tough guy as Yoko. 
I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that was a, that was, so it was a, I mean, nothing really happened. I just went, we had a cup of tea, we had a chat. That's a fantastic story. Uh, yeah, that's incredible. It was just wonderful, you, you know? Yeah. And to think that, sure. But, but these, it's life. These things come and they go, and then the next yeah. thing happens to you, you know? Well, there's a lot that, yeah. that took place in that studio. Right? Yeah, uh, over the years, the, many things. A lot of bands have recorded there. It's, I mean, even after, you know, all the, all the Beatley stuff. Right, Dad? Wasn't mm -hmm. there some famous groups that recorded there? I'm, I'm struggling to remember off the yeah, top of my Yeah, ACDC recorded an album yeah. over there. It's really cool. Believe it or not, that's kind of an odd place to record it, an ACDC yeah. album. So, as you know, it went, the, the single went out in the States and a couple of other areas. And um, I think I've still got the magazine somewhere. I did actually get a review from Billboard. Wow. A complete mm. waste of plastic. <laughs> oh, oh, God. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty cool, you know. Billboard gave you the yes treatment there. <laughs> and that really was the end of my um, working with Rinka. <laughs> well, let's, uh, before we leave the discussion of your music, I mean, the one other thing we wanted to touch on here was the band you played with starting at the, uh, the very early 80s, RAF. Oh, okay. Well... I mean, that is quite, that's quite a nice story there, if, if you've got the time. I've got, uh, I've got the time. You've got the time? Yeah, we've got the um, time. Sure. After CBS, I moved to a very small studio down at the bottom end of Wardle Street across the road from uh, the Marquee Club called Red Bus. Now, Red Bus was a small record company, but they had some quite good success, hence the Mungo Jerry. Right. Because um, they were one of their acts. <laughs> it was a great studio. It was, um, if you imagine... a a basement dive, but on the fourth floor of an old London building. So you had to go in off the street, <laughs> up past a Chinese travel agency, uh -huh. up past a Chinese supermarket selling interesting and strange-looking objects, and then you finally got up to this top story. And it just had a, a little control room and a little window into a very, very small recording booth. You could just get four, maybe five guys in if they were very friendly. And in but, there was Ringo and Harry Nielsen. <laughs> Who would have thought? Again. Well, not quite. Not quite. But, <laughs> but there were some odd people that ended up in there. Uh -huh. But um, the strange thing is I got that job because, and again, you know, Beatles Connections, small Beatles Connections. It had been run by an engineer called Andre Jacquemin. Nice guy, about my age. And he'd managed to get the money together from handmade movies. Oh, wow. um, which, of course, okay. is George Harrison's film company, yeah. to build a more advanced audio for video voice kind of studio in North London, which is all where all the Ruttle stuff was done, for instance. <laughs> and, um, mm -hmm. But the little studio I was in, I mean, he had managed to do those most of the Monty Python albums in that tiny, tiny space. Wow. Because obviously every, hmm. everything was done on the cheap if you could in those days. Yeah. Because that's just how it was, you know, particularly from the world of broadcast. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was fun. What happened there that's interesting? Well, you remember I mentioned I did some re Renaissance work at Delane Lee. Mm. Well, through really weird... My elder brother at one time did some private taxi work down mm. where we lived in Surrey. And one of the other guys... No, I may have to think about names here. John Hawking. Still around. I think he's still living in Los Angeles somewhere. Uh, my brother knew the piano player who'd been in the early renaissance in the bank of the straubs and uh, was with the animals for a while but again he was kind of between projects as you might call it mm. 
Yeah. And it turned out he was working with Jane Relf, Keith Relf's sister from the Yardbirds, uh-huh. uh, and again, early Renaissance, and Jim McCarty, the original drummer and major writer for Renaissance, Yardbirds again. Turns out Jim McCarty lived in the street behind us. When I say us, my old parents' house from when I was much younger. Yeah. But anyway, and those guys, a guy called Louis Cinemano, um, ba- and a magic bass player, very kind of mm. Jacques Pistorius kind of, kind of guy, you know. They were desperate to do demos for a new band. So I just said, well, come and use the place I'm working at. It's fine. So we did a whole bunch of demos. And uh, that was the time of the forming of a band called Illusion. Mm-hmm. And uh, they got um, a two-album deal with Island Records in London. And a few months later, there I was uh, in Island Records, engineering and co-producing the first Illusion album. And then we took it on tour. just amazing the little things that spark off yeah. other little things yeah. things you don't expect you know one minute the guy whose job you're taking is telling you he's got money from george harrison the next minute <laughs> i'm meeting a guy that was in the, was in the bloody yard birds for crying out loud <laughs> and i'm and i'm working with them it's great you know yeah um very strange uh, also of course um red bus had uh Munger jerry as artists so did a whole bunch of demos with them they they were completely yeah. as mad as you'd expect Another project that Red Bus were working out with was some guys from up north, and uh, which included Brian Johnson, who then, of course, years later went on to join ACDC. Again, yeah. what you see is what you get. Is a big, bluff, northern lad. If he's your pal, nothing's too much trouble. Yeah? Nice guys they were. So mm-hmm. weird things that you get to do. I left there to go and do the uh, sound uh, on tour stuff, and that was kind of about it, really. And I got this opportunity to move to Edinburgh in Scotland. I was kind of a bit, well, I kind of had enough of central London and going in and out of London from Surrey every day. And it was either on a motorcycle at all hours or on trains that you couldn't move in. Yeah. Enough was enough. And I'd I'd gotten married and my wife was an air stewardess. So because she was long haul, we could just use the shuttle. So getting up and down to London was like $10 each. It was no less than a taxi fare to the airport, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I took a job in Edinburgh, a place called REL. Again, a real basement dive, very basic. But the nice thing was that because I knew a lot of stuff from my experience, I could get the best out of it. And nobody else up there had any idea because they hadn't been exposed to the techniques and the experience. Yeah. That was a time of um, punk music, mostly, unfortunately, which I was not very keen on. But hey, you know, they were trying. So I was doing Scottish country <laughs> dance music. They were trying. Um, <laughs> All sorts of weird stuff, some classical yeah. music, uh, re- remote recording. And part of the company was a small radio jingle production company. And so I got in tow with the guy called Dave Valentine who wrote and sang and performed most of the jingles. Yeah. And uh, again, we went for it. And in our evenings and weekends, we basically made an entire demo album 
of music that nobody in the UK would ever want to hear at that time because it wasn't punk. Right. For our money, it was kind of a little bit foreigner, a little bit queen. Uh, I hadn't told anyone. He didn't know us. I'd been in Queen, by the way. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a bit difficult. When years have gone by, if you start telling people in the middle of nowhere that you've been in a big famous band, they're just going to think you're an idiot. <laughs> well, you know, it, it sounds like a crazy story, doesn't it? Although there, there is a payoff to that, though. So we had this album. And it was, it was actually, I think, very good contemporary pop music, but more of an American nature than of a European nature. I mean, uh, Dave, we would do a whole, whole crap load of harmonies and stuff. Um, yeah. Why don't you surrender? My heart is in a hell of a state. Is it a matter of time? Is it a matter of give and take? Oh! Heart, tell me what to do. I'm pinning everything on you. Amazingly, you still see these albums on eBay sometimes. I'm thinking, what are people doing? They should be in landfill by now, you know? Anyway, sorry. So, we had this album. It's a pretty good album, but I'm kind of American, though. Or certainly British American. So I made up a, a cassette. Because yeah. in those days, it was a compact cassette. was really all you could do yourself. And I made a cassette with an album cover, uh, just a black and white photography, and we'd chosen the name RAF, or I had rather. And it was kind of a joke, really. It stood for rich and famous, as in, <laughs> I, we hope, you know. <laughs> that, was my, that was a question. Well, I said Royal Air Force. And, uh, and we used the RAF wings and stuff as a logo, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Aerosmith. I told you it was a good idea. And, um, <laughs> so I, I made 20 of these. Because of my wife was with uh, British Airways, I booked myself, you're like this, a return <laughs> flight to Los Angeles for the princely sum of $70. Wow. And um, I jumped on a plane and thought, this can't be that bad, because I'd done a little bit of research, obviously. And I'd started yeah. making or trying to make some appointments. And, uh, well, the interesting thing about that is, of course, I think, this is amazing. All these record companies, and they're all on Sunstrip. Boulevard or Sunset <laughs> Now, I didn't know it was 47 miles long. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't walk anywhere. Nothing's <laughs> so anyway, be Driving that as city. it may. So yeah. I, I got to uh, uh, LAX and found myself a, a room at uh, a slightly dodgy, what do they call those, a motel down in Santa yeah. Monica and proceeded to just, um, I rented a car and once I discovered I needed a car. yeah. And you'd be amazed that when you phone people up, now, I think you'll, you'll know that in those days, if you picked up the phone and someone came at you with a full English accent, you'd maybe listen a little bit more than you might some other accents. <laughs> and so I just went into the full BBC mode and said, hello, um, I'd love to make an appointment with one of your A&R gentlemen. I've just travelled 6,000 miles and I've got a segue with all the hooks of a whole album that runs in three and a half minutes. Do you think you could find me three and a half minutes? The amazing thing is, it worked. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you are validating, by the way, all of the things that I've often thought about what English people must understand about the use of their accent in this country. Uh, I work with a few English people, and can I tell you what? I think they're aware, like you were aware, that we stop and we listen more carefully. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's crazy, but it's just how it is. On the other hand, don't yeah. forget... Yeah. 
there are certain American accents that if you open your mouth here, the same thing will happen. Really? It's just that I was a bit more Ronald Coleman, that was all. <laughs> one well, whenever oldies. you're watching... Whenever you're watching a science fiction character who has gravitas, it's always an English accent. Every time. I don't know why. Even if it's an American, they'll put on the English accent. Isn't that strange, though? And we make quite good bad guys, too. <laughs> we were talk- I was talking about this with my brother the other day. Not to go off on this, but I know you're a Star Trek guy. Chancellor Gorkon, the leader of the Klingon High Council, talks in an English accent. He's a Klingon, for heaven's sakes. He's yeah, a Klingon. Anyway, comes it's, from it's the a far crazy west. World. It's a crazy world. <laughs> but what the funny thing is, over the last, well, last few decades, of course, more and more what I would call, if I use the word common, I don't mean it in a horrible way, a more usual, less, I suppose I call it less educated kind of English accent sure. has come from the fore. Because since the 80s, particularly, our society has shifted quite a lot when it comes to how people behave and how they sound. But yeah. there you go. That's life. Go. So anyway. Upshot is, after knocking on a few doors, being shown the door again from the other side, <laughs> I um, met a lovely lady who was the, only the receptionist, mind you, at A&M Records, which, uh, what a great place. It was down, yeah. um, I think it was La, La Cienega, I believe, and it's yeah. the old Charlie Chaplin film studios. It's still the same original buildings. So I got shown in, very nice. Traditional coffee with creamer. What's what's creamer? Have you got any milk? Um, and that was fine. We got it sorted out in the end. And I was introduced to a lovely little gentleman who was a guy called David Kirschenbaum. And he looked exactly like his name makes you think he'd look yeah. like, you know, that kind of traditional kind of wee man look. He was a nice guy, nice guy. Uh-huh. And he let me do my pitch. Four weeks later, I had to put on a showcase in Edinburgh with a live full band for 12 A&M staffers who flew across for it. Now, if I explain that RAF was the singer, writer, and myself, so we quickly had to get some of the guys that helped us on the demos (laughs) to say, will you join the band? It looks like there might be a deal. (laughs) Yeah, okay then. So the band, it was one of the things that maybe wasn't so good about it was that it was really the two of us plus some guys. Mm. Um, But hey, you know, it worked out. So we had a great time. Mm. We um, rehearsed. Uh, you know, the show went well, obviously. And then we went down to Air Studios in London to do the tracks. And that's where I met Brian May again. Oh. I was walking down the oh. corridor. I mean, I had bumped into him once a few years earlier in the Science Museum in, on a sort of Sunday afternoon educational day out with myself and my girlfriend. And he was obviously with his girlfriend. And that was just a kind of a ships in the night. Oh, hi, how are you doing? I'm going, Jesus, you recognize me. That's amazing. Well, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say Jesus, I'm sorry. But I was very surprised that like, I was oh, recognized. Yeah, look at that. A nice Tyrannosaurus Rex, huh? Yeah. yeah. And, th- and they were really kind of, they were really hitting it by now, you know? So anyway, a little bit later, and this will be, what, 17, 8 or 79? 70. Anyway, he was in mixing tracks for the concert for Cambodia. In one of uh, oh, okay. in one of the knee the brand new Neve powered mixing desks, the ones with the flying faders got them down. Yeah, that just made me giggle the first time. Someone pressed play on the machine, and all of a sudden this desk came to life. Weird. Anyway, I digress. But bumped into him in the uh, corridor, and again, much to my total surprise. Oh hi, how you doing? Oh hi, yeah, Doug, how you? Not nice to see. You. Great, you guys are doing well. I said, oh, yeah, what are you doing here? I said, well, I've got my band in studio too with an American producer. Would you come down and say hi? That would be a really nice gesture. And he said, yeah, all right. I mean, he may have talked 
quite unpleasant things about me behind my back of what a bouncing idiot I was. But I have to say that in normal <laughs> society, he was very polite. He was very mm. polite. So he came down. We push, in, push open the door and walk into the control room in Studio 2. Now, we've got a staff engineer helping us out because I was supposed to be being a musician. And we've got uh, David Kirshenbaum, you know, Vice President A&R, A&M Los Angeles, sitting there yeah. being a producer. Right. And the members of the band <laughs> sitting around looking like a bunch of slovenly louts that we were. And everybody's jaw just hit the floor. Because I had never... I had. Uh, that they knew some of them by then that I had mentioned Queen in passing, but it was never A and M never knew. <laughs> but the guys that I worked with ha- had kind of learned over the couple of years that yeah, I had been for a while. But I, I did suspect they probably thought I was just telling a story to be more interesting. <laughs> so it was one of those little moments that you go, "Oh, that was good. Yeah, that was good. satisfying." <laughs> <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is. Uh, well, not history at all, because he went away again. And um, <laughs> we did an album. It was, it was quite a nice album. It was a good album. Demon. It's overrated. It can only lead to frustration. And when you're up, you're really up. And when you're down, you're down. No more leaning on my door. I can't take it anymore. Give me a little time. Don't try and trick me. didn't really get much success the real problem is that the london a&m office didn't like us because we did i was also the ma- my own management and they don't yeah. like dealing with artists as managers mm. as, as i discovered over the years they'd much rather have someone mm. they can complain to who is who is not the artist you know? <laughs> yeah. and also they were into kind of the police and post soft punk they didn't want some bunch of people poncing about with their harmonies you know but you know we got you know we got some gigs did okay Released a follow-up the next year. We did a follow-up album, which we self-recorded in a studio called Jacob's Farm. The Heat's On, which is excellent. Excellent, by the way. I, re- I Talking pictures on that album is <laughs> That awesome. is quite I interesting, isn't it? it? It's yeah. interesting you should note that one because um, you know it's got that kind of rather strange walking yeah. kind of keyboard yeah. part. When I was in Los Angeles, I was in a shop getting, I was actually renting a guitar to do some overdubs. Very nice Gibson Les Paul Artisan, one with all the kind of flowers up the neck. Wish mm. I'd bought that, but I didn't have the money. Anyway, but I'd seen something called an Oberheim, which is a totally new... I mean, all we knew was Moog. We hadn't heard of Oberheim. Yeah. So I imported the first Oberheim OBX into the UK, and a guy called Peter John Vitesi, who later joined Jethro Tull, because Ian Anderson saw him play with us at the Marquee Club across the road yeah. from Red Bus. So it's, all, it's all circles. He was a really qualified, full jazz, full everything keyboard player. Really clever guy. And he could make that synthesizer just sing, you know. And he came up with all these kind of weird little mini arrangements, which really he didn't get enough credit for at the time, it must be said. He was very good. But, yeah, it's got some interesting noises on that album. We tried, yeah. uh, although we were still a guitar and piano-based pop rock band, yeah, we deliberately made the attempt to sound a little off the wall with the arrangements. I mean, you'll find there's actually, where there's guitar, it's loud and buzz-sorry, because that's kind of all I do. But quite a lot of places, there is no guitar. Yeah. And there'll just be little funny little noises coming in and out. So it was quite an interesting album. Not being such a strange child No one could get near me And now that I'm older 
The dynamics are what I really appreciated about it and the, the variety of style. You know what? It, it gave me a lot of ELO vibes. It gave me some rock pile energy, I think. like oh, That's nice to hear. Meat and potatoes rock and roll, but with the sort of power poppy harmonies. Like It's right in my sweet spot. I quite enjoyed it a lot. Um, oh, that's nice. I'm, I'm so glad. Well, you're, you're, in, you're in quite a small club, so thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to get this stuff digitized and onto Amazon and iTunes and shit. We got to get that oh going for you because it's not on I think there. that would be a contractual nightmare, as they say. Let's, let's <laughs> get Kirschenbaum on the phone. Do you know what I liked about him more than anything else? Bearing in mind, it's America. It's warm and sunny in Los Angeles, as I discovered. He let me drive his Porsche lift-top car, wow. which I was great. A 911 Targa. I had never seen one before in my life. It was great. <laughs> I couldn't believe that you poor bastards are only allowed to do 55. What's that all about? Well, it's 70 now. Oh, is it? Oh, well done. Well, over here in Florida. <laughs> he got that with that Joan Baez money, because he looks like at A&M, he was working with Joan Baez for a while. And stuff. Oh, he, I'm just looking him up. Doesn't say if he's oh. dead or not. I don't know. Do you want another silly, tiny aside? A story about nice. David Kirschenbaum. Now, he was a nice man, okay? So I'm not ripping him. But we went to a big pizza place underneath a hotel one night when we were in the studio called, I think it was like Chicago Pizza Place or something like that. And it was all done up really American. So he's in his element table. There's probably 10 of us around the table. And uh, he's given it all this stuff. And we're in central London. Yeah. And he turned and said to the waitress, hi, do you want to come on around to uh, the studio? We're, we're, we're carrying on with some sessions later on tonight. And this little girl looked at him, why don't you piss off, Baldy? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that shows some real character, you know, real character. <laughs> he took it completely well. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't uncool or anything. It was, it was just a magic moment, you know. We were interviewing a, um, an English singer, and she was telling us a story about how she was showing her American husband around England for the first time and she said that he saw a couple of older English ladies walking up and he said good morning or so nice day today or something like that and they go what's so nice about it <laughs> like, there's England for you <laughs> well on the assumption ever anyone ever answered you in New York that sounds more New York than London to me well that's true too I guess I shouldn't be so stereotypical <laughs> I found New York quite a strange place to because I walked everywhere uh, and one, one night I was staying yeah. at a place called the Mayflower at the bottom end of Central Park and um, it was winter so all the, all, the shine, all the twinkly lights were in the trees and I walked out and there were these two white flashes in the distant trees and a blam, blam sound so I turned around and walked back into the hotel <laughs> and to this day I have no idea what happened <laughs> there were big twinkling lights <laughs> I think someone was was killed I think someone was I suspect dead. there may yeah. have been foul play yeah. there's foul I suspect foul play <laughs> I used to work in Philadelphia and um, I was in the office and I heard two shots I thought they were gunshots and I said to the owner I said sounds like two gunshots and he goes oh only two <laughs> <laughs> so we were in South Philly so it was, it was a little bit on the uh Dodgy side. I love Philadelphia. I was only there a few years ago on a, a video shoot for, um, there's a quite a famous uh, auction house there. 
And it's mm. a fascinating, a beautiful old city, but with all the modern stuff mm-hmm. around it. And what a museum mm-hmm. and art gallery. Wow. See, I thought mm-hmm. I knew something about art. And I like my French Impressionists. And you go to Philadelphia and you go into this building and there's 10 times more French Impressionists there than I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. Unbelievable place. Really yeah. great. That and the mad kind of those weird kind of steak and cheese sandwich things. Yeah. Could hard, oh, they're excellent. Could hardly move after one of those. <laughs> but there we are. Not really anything to do with life and music. Just That was just life after yeah. music. So what's on the horizon for you, Doug? Well, luckily your listeners can't see what a decrepit old cretin I've become. So <laughs> I'm quite old now. So I'm, I'm kind of soft retiring out, out of um, video work. I've kind of done that. I, mean, I still do odd projects for people because I've built a small studio uh, in my garden. Mm-hmm. So it's got all the video gear in it. But the nice thing about video gear is, hey, guess what, guys? It's the same gear you used to make music. Way! <laughs> so one half of the room mm, looks kind yeah. of a bit professional video. And the other half is just full of all my instruments, everything I've collected. And I come out here and I pretend to be 25 again. And so I just do <laughs> odd covers. I'll do little play-ins for people. Do almost anything. Sort of last Queen-related thing is I got found and got asked to do a couple of pages for a book and I did mm-hmm. and then the fan club said well could could you come and do a talk we're always trying to find people with anything to do with Queen at all no matter how yeah. big or little or mm-hmm. whatever yeah sure okay mm-hmm. so that was about six years ago and um, so ever since then again because I don't like being in the audience or I attend these things but I provide video services so I shoot all all the tribute Queen acts and all the things that happen on stage and the interviews and put them onto the big screens and then give people the videos of it after the event. I generate all the kind of the, the links, like the flying logos and stuff, you know. Yeah. And as a result of that, because it was all cancelled because of COVID, because it should have been in last October, I produced a three-and-a-half-hour virtual official International Queen uh, convention, a fan wow. club convention. Hmm. That was him. So, you know, so I get sent in. Another guy who works for the fan club is helping by gathering all the stuff. A yeah. um, guy called... Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy Bacon, nice guy. And um, so I've got clips from Brian. I've got various artists, artists who couldn't appear because it was cancelled, but the will come next year. Yeah. Also, uh, some <laughs> clips I'd made from preceding years. We did a couple of silly little sing-alongs where I just do a bit with some of the other guys who work on the crew, just cover versions of like crazy little thing called love, stuff, stuff. Yeah. But here's the weird thing mm. is, so the real event, you get about a 1,000 people and... <laughs> We had over 15,000 people watch this thing from around wow. the world. Wow. So that was kind of cool. Nice. Sadly, yeah. it doesn't, yeah. uh, doesn't earn Definitely. any money, but it was a kind of cool project, you know. That's awesome. It's a labor of love. Yeah, well, know. I guess it must be. And you see, despite yeah. sounding like an egocentric maniac, I'm quite an obliging person, really. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I must be. I mean, I, or I wouldn't have lived the life I've led. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've also gone to a few things like a Queen Day in Milan, Barcelona, where you get up and you do a five a very short interview because no one can understand you, obviously, uh, with a tr- with a translator. And then they because they all have sound alikey tribute bands, you just get up and sit in and do a couple of songs with them, and that's quite sweet. I mean, because I'm not really anybody. It was a long time ago. It was a tiny, tiny time. But I guess there aren't many people who can say that they were actually in the band as opposed to having played on stage of the band or whatever, you know. Do you jump around during that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't think I don't still jump around. I mean, a bit slower. <laughs> but um, I've worked out this way that to avoid ridiculous carriage costs, 
I have a Stratocaster that I just unbolt the neck, fold it in half, and put it in my suitcase. Hey, there you go. <laughs> Do you know, it works every time. Fresh set of strings, you're off. Do you have the same guitar still from when you were 17? Oh, you know, I so, so wish I did. I don't know what happened to it. Because those old instruments are worth good buck now. Oh, this, oh, this was not a posh oh, instrument. Okay. This was a, a German copy of a Telecaster okay. bass uh, that I then refurbished along with the help of a guitar maker that I knew. And um, the bass player in the last sort of amateur band that was in, he used it. And after that, I have no... I know what the case for it is. It's in a, it's in a friend's lockup somewhere down south, and it's still got my hand-painted queen on the outside of it. Oh, God. How mad is that? That's so cool. Um, but the guitar, I don't know. Well, you know when you leave bands and things like that? Most of the yeah. stuff that I had kind of went one place or another. So I spent the last few years replacing all the, my favorite things. So, sure. So I've got a... I've got a nice little collection of instruments and things to make noises with. Keeps me happy. Yeah. Um, cool. And hopefully, one day, I might even get around to doing that blues album I always wanted to do. You never know. There you go. Now's the time. Lockdown. Now's the time. Lockdown. Let's do it. I mean, it doesn't have to be for anybody to listen to. I'm quite happy if it's just for me. But the nice thing about the Queen thing is that when I do little videos mm-hmm. or little cover versions of stuff, I can put it, I can put it on the fan mm-hmm. page because... Because of what People I've been doing be last year, I've got a couple of thousand followers. Sure. So, so at least somebody always right. writes something nice. And that's kind of nice, you know. Mm-hmm. Makes it feel worth, like it's worthwhile. But if we're really wrapping up, I do have something important to say. Yes. And this is really the grist of it all. Music really is the food of life. And if you've been lucky enough at a young age to listen to some good music, and I say good, it can be any genre, hopefully a mixture of genres, it can open your eyes and your mind to all sorts of things, and it can stay with you all your life. And it doesn't even matter if you can't play or sing a note. It's still music, and it's still, it's still part of you. I mean, I'm still listening to things that I was listening to in the late 60s in my car. Why not, you know? Not everything's for everybody, but I was just lucky that the Beatles were the first thing that really hit me, because what a yeah. huge vista of music that has given to me, and hopefully it will be forever. Well, that's a very nice sentiment to leave this on, Doug. Thank you so much. Yeah, we thank we you. Had such I mean, I've left out half the things I was going to mention, but you go, what the hell? <laughs> well, we'll have to do a part two. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, think, I don't uh, think you can handle that. <laughs> when you've recorded your album, your blues album, you want to hear uh, it? Send it along. We are very, very happy to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate yes. it. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. Uh, these stories were amazing, Doug. I mean, they yeah. are. Tittenhurst alone, let alone <laughs> let alone Ringo. It, Not being famous, but being where famous people are, does give you a different viewpoint. Whereas if you ask a very famous person about <laughs> mm. it, they wouldn't remember any of those details because it was yeah. a different thing going on, you know? It's fascinating. Ringo Starr gave you 400 bucks. <laughs> no, excuse me. Fascinating. At that time, that was equivalent of nearly 600 US currency. <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> uh, no, it's seriously, oh, Doug, geez. thank you. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you very much, Doug.
is on. For more information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts yesterday and today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. (laughs) Wow. And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. (laughs) You can head to our social media pages, that's facebook.com slash yesterday and today podcast, or facebook.com slash third men, or you could head to society6.com slash Kaminsky family podcast, that's society, the number six, dot com slash K-A M-I-N-S-K-I Family Podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. (laughs) Guys, we need your help. (laughs) Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. (laughs) Thank you, Dad. All right, we'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see me. Wow. Well, that was fun for me. I hope it was a bit of fun for you too. A big thank you from me to everyone at Yesterday and Today Podcast for taking a little interest in my rather strange little life. And thank you very much to all of you for uh, staying with it. So here, as my way of a thank you, is a little tribute to the guys that have meant so much to me throughout my entire life. A wee cover version of one of my favourite ever songs, Hey Bulldog.
Solitude is measured out 